Romans 6, 1-11. Dead to sin and alive to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we're grateful for this this truth that you have accomplished whatever is necessary for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. Father, we believe in his death. We are united to him in his death. We thank you, Lord, that we are redeemed because of the blood of Christ. You convinced us that our sin was worthy of punishment, and yet you took our sin and our punishment and placed it on Christ instead of us, so that we not experience the eternal punishment, the lake of fire and brimstone that we deserve. Thank you, Father, for doing so. And now that you have given us a correct understanding of our sin and our reconciliation with you, we pray that according to the truths of this passage, we will live for Christ, live to God, live for righteousness instead of being slaves to our sin, that we might be slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, loving you and fearing you, walking in all your ways and obeying your commandments. May we not consider it um, drudgery to follow you. May we not consider it a heavy burden to obey you. May we delight in your word, delight to do your will, because your will is good. And your will is freedom. It's true freedom. Give us that understanding. Give us that belief. And may that cause us day by day to walk in joy, in righteousness, in the knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, we begin a section of the letter to the Romans from chapters 6 to 8, where the apostle, after having described... Theologically, our justification, first our depravity in in chapters 1 to 3, and then in chapters 3 to 5, our justification, how we are declared righteous in the sight of God. He explains that theologically and how we benefit from that. Well, now also theologically, in chapters 6 to 8, he's going to describe our sanctification, our holiness, our growth, our walk. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 comprise 
an argument or a theological discussion, explanation of how we must now walk in holiness, rejecting sin in our life. Then the later chapters, especially chapters 12 to 16, he's going to explain practically what it means to live a holy life. Practically speaking, not so much theologically speaking, but practically speaking, what does it mean to be holy in day-to-day living? And the other section, 9 to 11, how is it that if we benefit so greatly, so wonderfully from these truths in chapters 1 to 8, how is it that one has right standing or comes to have right standing before God? Is it because of works? Is it because of our goodness? Is it because of our will, our free will, our goodwill? No, it's by the predestination or election of God who graciously chooses us to benefit in these ways. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially 9 and 11. Coming back to Romans 6. After saying we are justified, after declaring that we have right standing before God in Christ, because we believe in Christ, it would be natural for the flesh our sinful nature, our sinful tendencies are bent to sin and commit iniquity. It would be natural for all of us, whether in the church or outside the church, it's natural for all of us to say, well then, everything's fine between me and God. I can now live as I please. If Jesus took care of everything, then I don't need to follow him in any way. I don't need to continue giving up my sin. I've already confessed my sins to God. Therefore, there's nothing more that God expects of me. That's the natural fleshly tendency. It's not the spiritual and godly tendency. It's the fleshly and natural and demonic tendency in human nature to say those kinds of things, to think that way. And there have been many people who have thought that way over the years. This is evident both in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And throughout church history, we have a belief called antinomianism. Antinomianism, anti meaning against, and then namas is the root of the word nomianism. Namas means law, against law, meaning against the law of God. Many people claiming to be Christians are antinomianisms, are antinomian. Whether they understand the word, know the word or not, that's what they are. Remember, everything has a name, sometimes even personal names, to identify objects, people, concepts. That's the nature of reality. Everything has a name. Even diseases have names and sometimes personal names. And even spiritual diseases that are destructive to the soul, have names. So, this is usually what happens that people in the church will say, there's no need to obey God. There's no need to love the law of God. No more law, because we're all under grace. And these days, also, it's known as Christian liberty. (coughs) Christian liberty. Biblically speaking, Christian liberty has a certain meaning, but what they do is they take a biblical word or a biblical concept or or, or a biblical truth and they pervert 
the meaning of it. They distort and mangle the meaning of the word in order to justify their wicked behavior. And that's what's going on today in Christianity. Christian liberty is used as a pretext to commit sin and not preach against sin. That's used as a pretext, a false reason to avoid preaching against sin. And even some egregious sins, they are never addressed. They redefine sin. They distract us from what sin really is. They talk about this or that being a sin, but not the things the Bible talks about as sin, according to the biblical definition. And under the rubric or label, Christian liberty. That's very common. In the past, if you study church history and theology, it's known as libertinism, the libertines. They were actually some people and and groups. Libertinism, you see the word liberty in that word, that they justified living wickedly because we're saved by grace, because we believe Jesus died for our sins. So after that, then there's no need to follow God, obey God, fear God, walk in His ways. There's no need for any of that. There's no need for Christian growth. My reconciliation has happened, and therefore there's nothing more of me, expected of me in the Christian life. Well, all of that is false, it's dangerous, it leads to hell, it's heresy, it's apostasy, whatever word you want to use, Even the most severest of words, that's what it is. It leads to hell. It's the highway to hell to believe that way. Because anybody who thinks that way has not initially thought properly, concluded properly about what the gospel is. Because if we first understand what the gospel is truly, we would never fathom. The thought would never come to our mind that, Now that I believe the gospel, I can live the way I please. It would never come to our mind unless it came from the flesh. But it's not going to come from our new nature. It's not going to come from the new heart to say, I can live in my sin. The way I used to be, there's no need for me to turn away or repent of that. It's all false. Well, the Apostle Paul, both by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit and understanding human nature, He anticipates these objections. Either he's heard of it already from the Romans, or he's anticipating these normal objections that commonly arise when one hears about grace and the grace of Christ. That's why he starts in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? This word increase, he used in chapter 5, verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Since it is true, according to Romans 5, that when there was a lot of sin... It took a lot of grace to cover that sin, to remove that sin. Then, if it's good to experience a lot of grace, then why not sin a lot? That was the logic, and that is the logic of the flesh. That God's abundant grace 
will be more than enough to take care of my abundant sin. But that's not when we do it intentionally. That's not when we do it deliberately. We shouldn't be thinking, because God will forgive, therefore I will commit as much sin as I want, whatever it is that I want to commit. That's not the logic of the Bible. And the, the one who thinks that way hasn't thought about it correctly. That's why he presents this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? No. The answer is an absolute no. And being a logician and a good theologian, philosopher, however you want to describe the Apostle Paul, he asks questions and then gives the answer and then expounds on his answer. Verse 2, may it never be. Absolutely not. Certainly not. How could you think of such a thing? That's what he means when he says, may it never be. How could you ever think of such a thing? Don't you understand what I've been saying in these chapters earlier? Don't you get it? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? If we died to it, believing in the death of Christ, how is it possible for us to ever imagine that we can and should continue living in it? If the sin that needed to be confessed before God, if that sin was so heinous and egregious, so filthy and polluted in the sight of God that we needed to confess it, how could we even imagine that it's good to continue doing it? How could we imagine, whatever the sins are, how could we imagine that it's okay to continue doing so? Do we not have, throughout the Old Testament, many examples of God's hatred and anger against sin and sinners and the consequences? Do we lack examples? Or even in the New Testament, even on the lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did Jesus not preach enough against sin and teach people to reject sin? Yes, he did. So in what way could Jesus' death be sufficient to excuse us for sinning in the future after we confess faith in Christ? Absolutely not. Didn't Jesus say, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Did he not say so? Did he not say in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why did Jesus say that in Luke 6, 46 and John 14, 15? Why? Because there are many people who want to attach themselves to Christ in a superficial, artificial, pretentious way. That's what they want to do. But it's not possible in the true sense, in the genuine sense. An honest sense. It's not possible. That's why he says, how shall we who die to sin still live in it? We can't live in it. We can't revel in it. We can't bask in it. We can't swim in the mud and the mire of sin. It's impossible to swim in mud. He's saying we can't live in it. Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Here is another refutation with a rebuke. We may call these interrogative, interrogative rebukes. Christ practiced it, the prophets practice it, the Apostle Paul practiced it. An interrogative, a question. In asking the question, implied in the question to refute the false notion is a, a, a rebuke or a chastisement of the one who would even think in such a term, in such a way. That's why he says, do you not know? You should already know. You should already know because of the nature of things. You should already know because of the law written in the heart. You should already know because of the way the gospel was preached to you. You should already know because it's already in the word of God. All you have to do is read. Don't you know how to read? And if you don't know how to read, if you do know how to read, why don't you know what it says? It's obvious. It's the difference between night and day, light and darkness, right and wrong, right hand, left hand. It's so obvious Why don't you know? So I need to throw it back on you, you objector, by saying you claim to have knowledge, but I'm telling you, you don't know. Why don't you know? You claim, you bring something up, you bring up an issue, but the moment you bring it up, don't you realize that your own mouth condemns you? You should know, and there should be no reason for you to raise the objection, ask the question, because you know the answer. And why don't you know is the issue for you to have the audacity to bring it up. And he says in three, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Yes, when we confessed faith in Christ, we identified with his death. That assumes that the preacher preached the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. We identified with the death of Christ. We understood the death of Christ was because of our sin, not his sin, not Jesus' sin, but our sin. If it had to do with our sin, then such a miserable, unjustified, uh, unjustifiable death of the innocent, pure, holy, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, why is it that he died? Because he, he died because he loved us. So if he died because of our sin, why should we think it's okay to continue in sin? If our sin brought about his death, then why is that a good thing? It's only good in terms of the benefit, but it's not good because of the cause or the reason for it. The reason's not good. Our sin is not good. He says in verse 3, The word baptized. This is an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate transliteration. The difference between a transliteration and a translation. If they were to translate this word, they would translate it immerse, to immerse. We, we, or, or us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed into his death. According to Greek lexicons, Greek dictionaries, by scholars of various persuasions, this word means to immerse or to dip. And dip is another way to say to immerse, to dip or to submerge in water, to immerse in water. This word does not mean to sprinkle 
and it does not mean to pour out. There are other Greek words that mean to sprinkle and to pour out. This is not that Greek word. There is no evidence in the Bible and outside the Bible for this to mean to sprinkle or to pour out. It does not mean that. Having said that, in what way is he using this word in reference to what? He's using it in reference to our identification with Christ Jesus. We identify or associate, we unite ourselves by confession of faith in Christ. So we are immersing ourselves in Christ. If we immerse ourselves in Christ, and therefore we are one with him in that immersion, how is it possible for our holy servant Jesus, our holy servant Jesus, or God's holy servant Jesus, how is it possible for him, who is holy, spotless, blameless, sinless, perfect, how is it possible for him and for us to be united to him in immersion, underwater, we, when we identify with his death and resurrection on our behalf, how is it possible for Christ to be united to us and say, yes, Joe, and yes, Susie, you, you like to curse, you like to commit adultery, you like to steal, you like to covet, you like to worship idols, continue to doing so. You can be one with me, you can be immersed with me, and continue living the way you want. Do what you want. It's impossible. Who in the world would think that way if he's redeemed? Who would think that way? Nobody. They don't think that way. The flesh thinks that way. And maybe occasionally for the believer, the flesh rises up and says, no, I don't want to do that. But the flesh does not win. The spirit wins. And we overcome sin. But those who have a pretentious Christianity, a false Christianity, they say it's okay to be immersed in Christ and yet sin. Verse 4. Therefore, having been buried with him through immersion into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. Here now, he's going to explain and clarify what he means by immersion. When the candidate for immersion, when he is standing upright, that is a symbol of being alive. Dead people don't stand upright and they don't walk, right? But when one is dead, then one is laid to rest and he is horizontal, correct? I, of course, we are horizontal when we're resting, when we're sleeping, things like that. But for the sake of the biblical analogy, when one is dead, one is horizontal and horizontally placed in the tomb, correct? Well, when one is immersed in water, one is placed by the officiant to the candidate. The candidate is placed horizontally, momentarily, in order to symbolize 
as it says in verse 5, in the likeness of his death. The Bible actually says it's a symbol, a sign, an illustration, or a likeness, a semblance. It resembles something. It says in verse 5. So that horizontal immersion in water represents the fact that we are dying to sin. Dying to our sin. And then when we come up out of the water, we are rising up to new life. That illustrates the spiritual transaction that has occurred in us. We are confessing it with our immersion. So he says, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. We are saying we believe that Jesus' death is what saves us from our sin. We are identifying or self-identifying with what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's what we are doing. Why? He says in verse 4, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He says, in order that, which expresses purpose, or so that expresses purpose. What was the purpose of Jesus dying and rising in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, what was the purpose of it? He says in verse 4, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's where the illustration, the symbolism, the likeness is completed. Death, immersion, and then rising up from the dead, newness of life. My old self My old man, my flesh, it's been put to death by my confession and identification with Christ, and then I rise to newness of life. So as Christ is alive, I am now alive spiritually, and I live for Christ, or I live to God in Christ. That's the imagery. He has a unique phrase here. In verse 4, he says, "...through the glory of the Father." Sometimes an abstract noun is used in place of another noun that we might expect. And this abstract noun, glory, is really meaning the glorious power. The glorious power, the glorious might exerted by the Father to raise His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. But He calls it glory to emphasize the glory. If he had said glorious power, it might be less obvious that he wants to emphasize the glory. So he simply says the glory. So the glorious power of God, that glory was manifested in the death and resurrection of the Father. In that same way, I'm sorry, uh, by the Father of the Son. The death and resurrection of the Son by the Father. If that power worked in Christ to raise him from the dead, then is that power not also able and available to help us to rise from the dead, from our spiritual darkness to spiritual life? Yes, it is. It's there too. And we see that often manifested in the life of a true believer. There might be some sin that the true believer used to practice 
And then upon conversion, suddenly that desire, that propensity, that love of that sin completely disappears or mostly disappears. How does that happen? It happens by the power of God, the glorious power of God that gloriously makes a person who was wicked, sinful, who engrossed himself in sin, then suddenly he says, I want to get rid of that. There's an utter distaste in his mouth for it, and he wants to get rid of that distaste in his mouth and in his life completely so that he's a completely new man. That's the glorious power of the Father in us. It was in Christ, but also that power is for us. Verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Here, the word united. We are unified with Christ, not only in His death, but also in His resurrection. What would be the purpose if we're only united to Him in His death, if there is no resurrection? If there is no life, powerful life, eternal life that Christ has, that He is able to deliver to us? What would be the purpose? There is no purpose. That's why He says, certainly. Certainly, verse 5. That likeness or comparison to his death in immersion to our immersion in death and being raised to newness of life is bound to Christ. And therefore, it will certainly happen to us. Not perhaps, not possibly, not for certain Christians, but not other Christians, not for super Christians, but not other Christians, It will happen. He says certainly. And he does not mean to categorize Christians. He does not mean to say there's an elitist group of Christians and then the common Christian. He doesn't mean to say it will only happen if you want it to happen, as some believe. Some believe that if you really want to be an extreme or a a super Christian, if you really want to be like that, then go ahead. That's for you. But it's not for me. No. He says, certainly, the death and the resurrection for all of us are connected. Certainly connected. There must be a change. A significant change. A radical change in one's life. Verse 6. And why so? So now he presents more evidence how we know so. Verse 6, knowing this. Remember he said, do you not know? Now he says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, better rendered old man, the old man or the old sinful man, the old nature, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We know that the old man was crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I was crucified with Christ because I believe in Christ and it's got a purpose, verse 6. 
that. That often introduces a purpose statement or purpose clause. That, why was it that we, our old man, was crucified with Christ in order that, so that our body of sin might be done away with? The body, the physical body, eyes, ears, nose, mouths, hands, feet, our bodies are used as instruments of sin, but a time will come when this body will no longer be used as instruments of sin. No more. Because when the final resurrection takes place, the bodily resurrection of all of those in Christ, when that takes place, our physical body will never be used for sin again. If that's the case, what should happen meantime? What should happen meantime between our conversion to the second coming of Christ when the resurrection takes place? What should happen between? Our body of sin must be done away with or might be done away with. Our body of sin. Therefore, if we did use our ears to hear some things that were sinful, we should have spiritual earplugs now. Don't listen to them anymore. If we used to use our mouth in certain sinful ways, we have to put a paper clip or um, clothesline clip on on our lips, spiritually speaking, and not say those words anymore, not talk that way anymore. Whatever it might be, he says, our body of sin has to be rejected. It has to be done away with. We have to get rid of it. Verse 7. Why so? For he who has died is freed from sin. Actually, in connection to verses 6 and 7. We were slaves of sin, but if a slave is a slave of sin, when the slave dies... Is the slave a slave of sin anymore? No. He who has died is freed from sin. Correct? We know that to be the obvious truth in reality, in day-to-day reality. If someone used to sin with his eyes, but then he's dead now, you see his body in the coffin. His eyes are closed. He has no breath in him anymore, right? Is that man who's now has his eyes closed and is about to be put underground, is he sinning in the way you used to see him sin with his eyes? No. No, that's obvious. He who has died is freed from sin. He's not sinning anymore. Well, if we're talking about this analogy of death and life, death and resurrection crucifixion and resurrection, if we're talking about this, then if we identify with the life of Christ, we have died to sin, we are freed from sin. No more loving and enslaved to sin. We are freed from it. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Of another summary to reiterate this point that if we have died with Christ, 
We shall also live with him. But he adds the phrase, we believe. We believe. What is it that we believe? Do we believe this? Or do we not believe this? We have to believe correctly. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. And further, what we should know, verse 9, knowing, remember he said, do you not know? He says, verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. What do we know? Is Jesus, after having been raised from the dead, is Jesus dying every day? No, he's not. Except in certain false Christianities, like Catholicism, that whenever the Mass is offered and the prayer is made over the Mass, that the partaker, the worshiper of the Lord's Supper is actually believing that Jesus died at that moment again. But they call it an unbloody sacrifice. He's being sacrificed every time. But here he says he is never to die again, whether bloody or unbloody or any imagination. Where he's never to die again. He died once and that's it. Now he is alive. If he is alive and alive forever, then death does not reign over him. If death doesn't reign over him and the sin that caused the death does not reign over him and we are with him, united with him, then why should we think that sin is a master or can be a master over us? He said slaves of sin in verse 6. Now he's saying, if we are slaves of sin, sin is our master. But in verse 9, he says, death no longer is master over him. If it's not master over him, then what about us? Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. One time in history for all time, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He died to sin, meaning in reference to sin. He died in reference to sin. Not his sin, but he bore our sin. If we believe in him, he bore our sin on the cross. He died with reference to sin, but verse 10 says he lives with reference to God. He lives to God. If he lives to God and we are one with him, we should also be living to God with reference to God. And in him is light and there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 No darkness at all, only light. That's what Jesus accomplished in verses 9 and 10. The connection to us, verse 11. The lesson. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead with reference to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive with reference to God in Christ Jesus. There is no way to attach ourselves, to unite ourselves to Christ Jesus and at the same time, connect ourselves 
to sin. Because when we connect ourselves to Christ, we are professing faith in Christ to be reconciled to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will not condone or flatter us on our sin. They won't flatter us. They won't condone it. They will reject it. Therefore, we have to consider ourselves in this condition. I said the Spirit. Why do we call the Spirit the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible does. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, how could the Holy Spirit tolerate unholiness in us? He does not. It grieves Him to grieve the Holy Spirit, such as in Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. We must not grieve the Holy Spirit because of sin. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.